Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the Crash MotoGP podcast brought to you by NordVPN. On the show today, we're looking back at an absolutely mega Australian Grand Prix, a fight all the way to the bitter end in MotoGP and more championship drama. A controversial Moto2 race two and the Moto3 title has been claimed and so much more coming up over the next hour or so. The recording date is Tuesday, the 18th of October. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever is Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. And well, Keith, let's start then with that race in MotoGP. An emotional win for Alex Rins and a last lap duel right to the end. The top seven split by less than a second. And what a way for him to do it on that Suzuki as they come towards the end of them leaving MotoGP. GP. I mean, what a way to do it. I mean, it's perfect, isn't it? Their social media, by the way, is the best in the paddock. There's no doubt about it. Whoever it is at Suzuki that looks after the social media side of things is brilliant. And this is a headline absolutely made for it. We couldn't just leave, it said, <laughs> which I thought was just a perfect way to, to sort of launch into the, the week's PR. You, know, what, you wonder what's going on at Hamamatsu. They must be sitting back there thinking, it's almost like the team has worked one right up their backsides in, in Hamamatsu, you know, and, and you'd want to, wouldn't you, in the circumstances, whether you're a rider, a team member or whatever it is, to be completely had the rug pulled out from underneath you. And then you go and win on probably, arguably, the best racetrack of the series, uh, where a Suzuki works as well as it does. It couldn't be a better advert for Suzuki than winning at Phillip Island, really. And Alex Rins, I mean, you just don't know with Alex Rins, do you? I mean, he's... He, He's had so many unforced errors, and then he gets this one absolutely smack on dead right. Uh, there are so many stories. As you said in the preamble, Harry, you've got they call um, what used to be Honda Hairpin. It's now the Miller Corner. And, of course, where does disaster come for Miller? It's at the Miller Corner. You might have expected that. Always used to make me laugh where they called the Lorenzo Corner was one where he got completely T-boned um, back in the day. You know, naming corners, is it can be a very dangerous thing to approach at the end of the day. Quattararo couldn't be a bigger disaster for Quattararo than what they had at, at Phillip Island. You know, you've only got to look at Zarco. Where on earth was Zarco this week? I mean, he, he was, I think, 12th on the on the opening lap or something along those lines, somewhere terrible. You know, it's such mixed fortunes on a racetrack that's really, really tricky. And yet we had 
you know, better weather than we thought we were going to get. The, the lead up to the, to the weekend wasn't particularly good, but we thought we were going to have absolute thunderstorms and wind and God knows what there, which is what you get at Phillip Island sometimes. And the weather was, was well, not perfect. It was far from perfect because of the wind that was there. But I mean, from a dry track perspective, it wasn't too bad uh, considering what we're going to get. So much to talk about. I better give Pete an opportunity. <laughs> Well, I mean, in fairness, Keith, I think it was you last week that called it, saying it was going to be the defining moment of the championship, Phillip Island. And, and you know what? It could well have been. We've got two races to go and we've seen enough upsets, haven't we, in the last couple. But it does have, does have that feel about it, doesn't it, after that mistake by Quattararo. Really, re I mean, 14 points on paper, you might say, well, you know, that's not that bad, 50 points to go. But it's the tracks that are left, isn't it, that, that really it's, he's up against it now. And as he said himself, it's the toughest job in his career he's facing now going into this weekend in Malaysia. He's, I mean, he's, he's got to win. That's, that's what he's looking at it as. That's it. Where, where the difference might come, though, of course, psychologically, defending a lead is a lot harder than actually chasing one down. I mean, I think the situation now, the roles have reversed somewhat, haven't they? Now the pressure's on Magnaia to protect that points lead that he's got. And Quattararo, well, he can throw caution to the wind and just get on with it without having to think about anything at all. That's the theory. But you often hear journalists particularly say to racers, well, yeah, the pressure's off now. You can, you know, you can, you can enjoy yourself. But you're already at the limit, pretty much. You're already at the limit all of the time. There isn't, you don't leave a gap. You don't leave anything on the table on purpose. So pretty much you're delivering whatever you're, you and your bike are capable of delivering at that particular time at that particular racetrack. So it will make no difference, I'm sure. You know, if Bagnaia's got an advantage in the last two rounds, then he's world champion. If Quattararo has, then we'll see. That's really where the muck's going to hit the fan. And uh, I've got to say, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean... Quattararo has now got a ride the two races of his life to, to, to bring this back. And that's going to be brilliant for all of us. The thing that stands out so much to me is how Fabio was 91 points ahead of Pecco after Germany. And now he's 14 behind. Just that switch around is just mental when you think well, about it, isn't it? It's going to go into the, into the books as a lesson, isn't it? To, to all young riders coming up when, you know, we often talk about Michael Laverty and his academy. I bet old Michael Laverty's banging on about it. You should never give up. You know, school race day, you know, when you go to the school race. I always remember my now 19-year-old being beaten at the line because she relaxed 10 yards before the line. You know, it's one and I'm not a racing dad. And I, I bet you've never let her forget <laughs> it. I, yeah. I, I, Where I was the pit board, Keith? Where was the pit board? But the lesson is there. The lesson is there in that. You never, to your very last breath, you never let go of something. And I think that that, that, that is, you know, this year with Bang Naya, 91 points. Ah, it was done, wasn't it? The World Championship was won. Quattararo was going to be World Champion. Go back, Danny Kent. Danny Kent only just held on to that, you know, Britain's Danny Kent, only just held on to that Moto3 World title. The second half of the season, he was being hammered at every single round. Just about got it over the line in the end. Held his nerve and, and was World Moto3 Champion. Yeah, there are, there are stories you can go back over the years. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone can come up with, with one at least that's their favourite. And this is going to be one of those, isn't it, at the end of the year. If Quattararo capitulates in the way that he looks like he's going to this year, then you know it will be that story forever. 91 points, that's nearly four race wins. <laughs> Can't believe it. Um, I mean, eight. yeah, Quattararo scored eight points out of 100 in the last four races, isn't he? I mean, it, the other way of looking at this, of course, is that, you know what, if Ducati hadn't had those problems at the start of the season and Bagnaia hadn't made all these mistakes we're talking about, five DNFs, 
he'd have wrapped it up several races ago, wouldn't he? I mean, since the summer break, Quattroaro's had one podium, the Aprilia have had a couple, haven't they? But really, it's all gone in the direction of Ducati, hasn't it? And and really, it was those early rounds, those early mistakes, the first third of the season that that's given Quattroaro and Aleix this chance. And, you know, sadly... Who would have thought it, as you say, you know, well, I can't remember. Usually the champion has, what, one DNF in a season, maybe two. That's sort of it. And and for all of these, the top three to have to have non-scored in the last couple of races, at least once, Quattro's case twice, three times. Incredible, incredible. Well, they better get it right because it's going to be their last chance to have an easy championship. Marquez is back. <laughs> Oof. You segue so nicely, Keith, onto that. I mean, how brilliant, though, is it to see Mark Marquez back up and and you know, almost back to his old self, it seems, or or in fact, just a new version of himself. And especially having to to save that bike as he did earlier on in the weekend, using the bad side, the bad arm. That is a big indicator, I think. And me and Pete were discussing it earlier off there. A big indicator showing why Mark Marquez can certainly. He's already on the podium. He can win a race probably before the end of this year. But next year, watch out for Mark Marquez. He's like the evolution of man, isn't he, Mark Marquez? I mean, we've seen him go through so much. You know, you felt like you've ridden alongside him quite often with all of this. And uh, to go through what he's gone through and to, to not lose that absolute inherent talent, that determination that you cannot save those kind of saves. To do it, you know, 2019, I think, was the last time we saw him do it. And he does it again this time with that great big, you know, front end under, ping it, you know, turn his knee slider right round to the back of his leathers, you don't save them. You know, I've ridden motorbikes all my life and I don't think, I think I've saved one and I can remember exactly when it was because it was so remarkable. You know, you can remember when that happened. You know, it's kind of being etched on your brain. Bloody hell, how the hell did I save that? I have no real clue. Um, whereas Marquez seemed to do it on cue. But the, the most motorbike racers, you know, you just don't save them like that. You're, you're down and he does it again. You know, he with his arm now 33 degrees or whatever it is, twisted back into shape, um, is remarkable. And isn't the sport a better place, in my opinion? And I hope not too many people disagree with me here because I just think it's a better place with Mark Marquez in it. It almost focuses everybody on their, their job. Not that they need focusing because they're all bloody mad as hatters anyway and focused on, on winning races. But all of a sudden, when Mark Marquez is there, it all moves up an extra level. It just goes up another level. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And a clever decision, running the soft rear tyre. The only guy on the grid to do that. I mean, he said it was a gamble, didn't he? And, and he makes it work. It just shows he's got that that mental ability as well, hasn't he? That he can ride the bike on the limit and he's still got something extra. He only set the 15th fastest lap in that race you know, yeah. in terms of the ultimate speed. But he won it through being clever and knowing when to be fast, didn't he? Yeah, they should be worried for next year. I would say so. What was it, though, about... Philip Island or was it the track or was it the way they had to run the bikes that just allowed for that such close quarter racing because I think we can agree that this year yes there's been some brilliant races but overall 2021 was more action-packed and, and probably more entertaining to watch but Philip Island that was a brilliant race why did we suddenly get that kind of racing? I think that they hadn't finished with their evolution of testing and so on and so forth you know nobody really knew what they were quite capable of. It wasn't wasn't a particularly fast race, I don't think, from 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 memory. I haven't studied the sheets like I normally do, but it wasn't a particularly fast race. So I feel that they were they're all coming from a lower benchmark than they perhaps were in the past, you know, and and kind of 
getting back in the swing of Phillip Island and, and its special little nuances that you need from, from a riding perspective. You know, there were riders who did better than I thought they'd do, Alex Rins, of course, and the Suzuki, and there were riders who did horrendously bad compared with what I thought they'd do. And I mean, I think that, you know, across the board, I think most people would have been like that. You couldn't have predicted what happened, surely. You know, it, it was just, you know, Alex Marquez, you know, he's ended up with a penalty for... for he had a terrible weekend, Alex Marquez. He was down on the ground more times than I saw him anywhere else. You know, it was uh, it was just one of those Phillip Island race meetings. It is when you travel that far, and it's kind of the back of beyond. You can't you can't appreciate what it's like until you get there. The people that are at trackside are huddled. You know, like they've got like their full winter gear on. It's like going to Alaska or somewhere to go and watch a race meeting. It is just unbelievable the atmosphere that's there. These are hardened race fans. I mean, I think it was 91,000 people there over the course of the weekend, which was a big crowd for Phillip Island. They did well, considering that, you know, campsites were flooded and, and unusable, you know, tracks that you'd normally walk down were blocked. Um, it, it was it was not a, a sort of friendly place to go and spectate, but what a spectacle when you get there, you know. And, and I think the riders were still getting used to that atmosphere right the way through the weekend. You know, the press office is different from everywhere. The paddock is different from everywhere. Parking is awkward. You can't get your cars in. There's a tunnel to go off under the track that's that's run by pedantic, you know, parking warden types. I mean, the place is, is it's not an easy race. It's not an easy race meeting, believe me. It's uh, well, it certainly proved to be uh, some brilliant racing. You mentioned there, Marquez has got uh, Alex Marquez has got that long lap penalty to do for Malaysia for taking out Miller. He takes out Miller from the race at his corner, and that is now Miller's title chances officially over. Uh, so he's setting his sights on uh, trying to get third in the championship. But um, Alicia Spargro, while we're talking on title contenders, Fabio obviously out, Peko now the leader, Alish still in there with scoring points, but. It just didn't seem to to really threaten the front, Pete. He's now twenty seven uh, points back from Pecco. Yeah, he he was really frustrated after the race. I mean, uh, he said, he said the second fastest up of the race. He was in that that big pack that we've just been speaking about. But it sounds like, and he wasn't the only one. But it sounds like the Aprilia team just got their traction control settings a bit wrong. You know, this was Philip Island really hard on tires. Keep previewed it last week they'd never run exactly this type of tire before and i think some people heard on the side of caution they were encouraged to do so you know just just be careful here guys like rins didn't but uh, some riders did marini was another one so it was across different brands that felt that they that they didn't quite use up all of the tire that they could have but in Alesha and uh, and maverick's case it got to the last eight laps and you can just see them start to drop down the field that the engine, the traction control was just too strong. It was just cutting the power out of the corners, and he was desperately frustrated. It's uh, it actually ties in a bit with, I guess, the Suzuki leaving situation, where Alesha was saying, "Look, the hardest thing in MotoGP is to have the speed to win," and they had the speed to win. You know, he sat on the grid believing he had the speed to win. He's been ten years in the sport, probably never had that before this year. He had the speed to win, just as in Mategi, or at least fight for it, and it slipped away through mistakes. And the reason I tied in with Suzuki is they've got a bike that can win and they're scrapping it. What a waste. You know, they've got this whole package, the riders, the team, everything. And in two races time, it goes in the bin. You know, there's people that would have been part of that winning team this weekend who won't even have a job in two races time. It's just it's just madness, really, that they that they're wasting what they have. You know, Suzuki previously, they were in MotoGP with their, their earlier bike, the GSVR. I mean, it never really had the speed to win at all. They now won five races and a world championship with this current bike. 
and you just think, you know, what a waste. I mean, that, that's my, you can say, oh, well, it's great to go out with a bang and it is, and, and I'm delighted for the team and the, and the riders. But I just think my feeling is that, you know, to put this package and that team, which is such a great team in the bin, if you like, what a waste. You know, I always like to make a Formula One analogy just because we've got Harry hosting us as usual. And, and it, 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 it's just a shame we can't have a Braun situation where Honda had done all the development and done everything and got their Formula One car to, to a really good position and then gave it to Braun for a pound for Jensen Button to go and win the world title the next year. And it, it kind of, it's almost like you would, you would hope that we could do something like that with Suzuki. You know, they... They give the team to somebody that's, that's that wants to run it and uh, still give the factory backing, but perhaps not the commitment from the finance side of things. But there won't be a situation like that because we don't have the kind of money that Formula One has to do that kind of thing. But it, it, you're right, Pete. It's I think Suzuki are doing themselves more harm than good when it comes to their reputation. But when it comes to their book, at the end of the day, this has got to be a financial reason behind it. They've looked at it. They've decided that, you know, racing at MotoGP level has cost them millions and millions and millions of pounds yen over the last um, five or six years, and uh, it's time to. I mean, you know, when when I I've mentioned this to a couple of people in the paddock, I mean, whenever you mention the Suzuki decision, people just shake their heads and shrug their shoulders because, uh, you know, on the, on the financial side, they say, well, look, the bikes are not changing that much. Yes, it is expensive, undoubtedly, but I mean. There's no big rewrite of these machines for next year. You know, it'll need a tweak on the aero, a bit on, as, as he's saying, the bike is a winning package, a bit like Braun. It doesn't need a redesign. I mean, it, it's already got it. You know, there's not vast amounts of money needing to be pumped in. And uh, just a shame, is it? I mean, they come, this, this EV thing they're all talking about with Suzuki. I mean, we saw in the past Fiat Yamaha, didn't we? Fiat came along and backed the MotoGP team, one of the, one of the most memorable brandings. They could have branded their MotoGP project with this electric, whatever. I don't even know what the electric car is from Suzuki. So there we are. If they branded their bike with it or even a, an electric bike, they could have used that platform, kept it intact. You, still, you know, anyway, it's too late now. And uh, you, yeah, touched, you touched on a very valid point. The fact is, rules wise, there is no major upgrades allowed at the moment. They have you know, built into the, into the system. Is it five years? I think it is before they can have massive changes. Um, they can Before any major technical changes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, 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 at the end of the day, you're absolutely bang on, Pete, bringing that up. And and so Suzuki weren't going to be in a bad position. It's not like everybody had got these massive upgrades of new motors and new chassis and everything for next year. They haven't. Um, so Suzuki, I, I've. It, wouldn't it be good if you could ever get? We won't ever, and there will be nobody ever that will get a, a an interview with anybody from the Hamamatsu board. That is for sure. But it would be great to understand the the thinking behind this or the lack of it whatever way you want to look at it. It is, uh, I think Pete described it so well, it's a waste, it seems. And then you, when you have, as you said too, Aprilia, a bike that clearly can perform with, with, a, with a, a great uh, lineup. If you were Aprilia, would you be looking at the people in Suzuki who are going to be out of a job at the end of the year and go, right, hang on, okay, there's clearly something maybe not quite right with the way our team is working. Alasia's called them out a couple of times and he's even said, we're not ready to fight for a title. We're just not there in terms of how the team operates. Do Aprilia then go, right, okay, let's try and pinch some people from Suzuki and see what we can make happen for next year? Short answer to that has to be yes, doesn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to be looking. I mean, Rivola is, is no mug. He came across from Formula One. It's, I don't suppose there's any coincidence that things have started to, to ramp in the upward direction since Rivola's been overseeing things at, at uh, track level. But, you know, 
silly mistakes have snuck into Aprilia this year and they're, and they're going to be beating themselves up badly about it. I mean, there are great teams around the world who have made mistakes. Um, Aprilia just are going through that phase at the moment that they will dial out of it in the end. I mean, it's something that, okay, this year might not be the year that Aprilia wins the world title. This year might be the only year that there's really been one up for grabs. I'll say slightly easier than the past before, and they might be kicking themselves for the rest of their manufacturing lives that they didn't win the world title in this year where it may have been fractionally, I, say, I really say this reluctantly, fractionally easier this year through other people's mistakes to grab a world title. Nobody normally gives away 91 points like has been given away to to Ducati and it looks like Ducati are going to capitalise on that when Aprilia should have been in that position as well to have taken it to Ducati based on the fact that Bagnaia made loads of mistakes this year as well. But then Aprilia have made, as you've said, too many mistakes perhaps and, and Aleish wearing his heart on his sleeve has, has said that you know they're not really ready for winning the world title. That's a fairly large smack in the mouth because basically what he's saying is we're not well enough organised to win the world title. It's not that the bike isn't capable because it obviously is. And in fairness to Aprilia, they included that quote in the team press release. So, you know, that gets signed off by someone quite high up, doesn't it? And, and obviously it's only a small fraction of what was said. You can you can get a much, much more detailed uh, uh, description in the story on Crash. But for them to actually go, you know what? Yeah, fair enough. You know, fair point. He, you know, as he said, 12 points in the last three races to fight for the world championship is ridiculous, was his words. But, you know, as he says as well, the other guys have also made big mistakes. So he's being a little bit hard on himself, but I think Aleish is in a different position, isn't he? He's the oldest guy on the grid. He knows how rare it is to get these chances. And so for him to see it slipping through his fingers for, for reasons that, uh, you know, other than performance, let's say, is really frustrating for him. And just on the Suzuki thing, yeah, I mean, I think already uh, the crew chief, uh, Rinz's crew chief, Manu, is going to be Vinales' crew chief. So they, they, at least one senior member is going over there. I think Tom O'Kane, the test team um, got, uh, crew chief, more than crew chief, really, with Guintoli, is off to uh, Yamaha, I think. So it, he'll be a great asset for them. But, you know, you can't fit all of the guys in Suzuki into other teams. So there will always be some people left out by this decision, sadly. There is World Superbikes, of course. Remy Gardner moves across. There's more Grand Prix guys in World Superbikes than there's just about ever been, as far as I can remember, or certainly ones that should have been in, in MotoGP are now in World Superbikes. Um, there are going to be opportunities, I suppose. Yeah, the cream rises at the top. Management knows you know, who's who's, what's what, more than any of us do. I mean, you know, we think we understand about it, but when you're on the paddock, dealing with the nitty-gritty every minute of every single day, every second of every day, sleeping or otherwise, then um, you're across the guys that you think may be a good fit for your team. And you'll be, you know, look at the, the schmozzles there was in the paddock when KTM came to the paddock and ripped off half of the Honda crew. You know, all of a sudden people that, you, you know, you're so used to seeing crew in, in certain colour jackets that all of a sudden it all swapped about, didn't it? When we were all, oh, you're with KTM now. Oh, you're the, hang on a minute, you're the gearbox man from HRC. How come you, now you're the gearbox man over in, KTM, you know, the secrets and the, the, the knowledge that these guys have from each factory, you know, I'm sure they I'm sure they have to sign off when they have a contract with the factory that there's NDAs, non-disclosure, you know, agreements and so on and so forth. But huh, how the hell do you enforce that? You know, intellectual copyright and all the rest of it is out the bloody window when you've lost your man. Um, the only way you keep them is, is by paying them for the next year to go on gardening leave but a gardening or leave yeah yeah or something along those lines i've got a garden that needs doing by somebody that good. <laughs> <laughs> you can come around you here already had pecco around for coffee paid, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we can find somebody to do your gardening, Keith, at some stage. Um, yeah, It'll be you, yeah. It was all, well, so much happening, uh, obviously, across the race. Um, the, the young guns doing quite well. Again, they're all on Ducatis, but if we look at Marco Pizzecchi and Ea Bastianini, Luca Marini, all getting really good results, fourth, fifth, and sixth, uh, Pizzecchi, Bastianini, Marini in that order, and Marco Pizzecchi securing Rookie of the Year in doing so. Yeah, Pizzecchi looked a cut above, didn't he? He looked really, really good. I think... Again, by not being on site, and I, I bloody hate it when I'm not on site, and I can't go and have a little look in Park Ferme and stuff like that. But from what I'm told and from what I understand, front tyres were a major issue. And towards the end of the race, you know, quite a lot of them had tyres that were completely shot um, one way and another. I mean, I, we had a cracking lap, the fastest lap that we've ever had around there on, in, in qualifying. So that, that, you know, obviously the, the, the grip level of the track was there, but the longevity of tyres were definitely a problem. And we, we talk about as well, sorry, Pete, um, just coming on to the other Ducatis, the Pramax, um, Joanne Zarco, what did happen to him? Because his teammate in the end, Jorge Martin, Paul leading the race for a while in that lead gaggle too, ended up seventh, but he was still in that front pack, whereas Zarco was a few seconds detached, really. Yeah, he, he was a bit like Banyai. He had a problem at the start with the whole shot device on the front. He, he, um, I- People might have seen Pekka sort of frantically twiddling all the devices as he rolled up to his place on the front of the grid, trying to get the front of his bike to lock down um, and wasn't able to do so. I mean, and, and you know, fair play to Pekka because he kept his cool. It could have been really stressful and he didn't get away badly, did he? I think he lost a couple of positions. He was about fifth into the first corners, but immediately attacked Quattararo and got ahead of him. So he recovered quite well. To answer your question about Zarco, he struggled more. Um, yeah, he he just uh, you know he, same problem. Front the front wasn't down, so he got more wheelie, but he really got caught up in the pack and, and just lost loads of positions and fought back. But yeah, not quite close enough. Um, Bastianini he had his airbag go off in the early stages. He was down in twentieth place. I mean, so to fight all the way back to fifth. Uh, you know, a couple of tenths of a second off the podium in the win was pretty remarkable by him as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, all of the Ducatis were fast again, although, as Keith says, a lot of the riders, Banyar included, did struggle with the front tyre um, towards the end. Well, they certainly did. And uh, that has changed the championship order because uh, Peko Banyaya, it is for the first time this season, isn't it, is now leading, ever. right? Ever. Yeah, ev- ever. Wow. As far as I so- yeah, so Banyaya then with 233 points ahead of uh, Fabio Quattararo, who is now on 219 points. So that 14-point gap at the top then, but the other way around with Quattararo now down to second. Alicia Spargo still it. And Nea Bastianini still technically, mathematically in it as well, up into fourth uh, as Jack Miller now rounds out the top five and out of contention. Marco Bezecchi, as we say, with that fourth place finish, uh, best rookie of the year. He's currently 14th in the standings. The next best rookie all the way down in 20th with Fabio De Giantonio uh, for Grassini, uh, who had a bit of a, a weekend to forget. I think it's fair to say for him further back. Um, that was uh, MotoGP. We'll come back to some more MotoGP chat shortly. I want to talk a little bit, though, about Moto2, if I may. Uh, it was uh, Alonso Lopez who took a long lap penalty and still came out in front uh, to win in Phillip Island. Pedro Costa on the podium and Jake Dixon third dedicated his performance to the late BSB rider Chrissy Rouse as well, which is a really nice uh, gesture. Um, but that heats things up in the title ever so slightly for Moto2. What did you make of all the action? Brilliant strategy from your race winner 
I mean, absolutely. I mean, to, to be able to put that, pump those laps in really early on, you know, it's harder to lead a race quite often than to chase somebody. And, and he just cleared off in the distance, gave himself enough of a gap to do the long lap penalty. And long laps are always a bit tricky as well, because, you, you know, that's a little bit dirtier down there. It's around the outside of the old Honda, now Miller hairpin. You know, you, you've got to get that bang on dead right. You're approaching it downhill quite rapidly. And um, and to tuck it in there and to, to come out back in front, you know, we all went, wow, <laughs> pretty impressive stuff. I don't think I've ever seen that done before, where he's... Uh, where someone has managed to keep keep their position quite as neat and tidy as he did. It was well thought out. So there wasn't anybody else in the race, was there? You know, he was going to be the winner, you know, barring a silly mistake somewhere, but he had just the pace all the way through. Jake Dixon, great fighting performance for him again. You know, I think he cemented his quality at the top end of, of Moto2 at the moment. It's, you know, he's not won a race, but, you know, he's there. You know, it's, it's, it's all but there. You know, will it come this year? You know, Sepang maybe, you know, will suit him, I think. Sepang is, a, you know, it's got some lovely corners on it. I can't wait to see who comes up top there. But I think Jake is there. He's, he's world championship material. You know, he's guaranteed what he's going to be doing next year. I'm really looking forward to a great 2023 for Jake. And, of course, now he'll be a dad by then as well, mm-hmm. you know, next year. So all these things mature a rider in a certain way and, and, and do a certain thing to your head. Um, and I think it's, he's going to settle in you know, really well with all of that, that element around him, that family element around him. It, he's not had it easy, Jake, you know, on or off the bike. And he seems to have just found that level now that um, he's going to be a contender. Well, that DNF, though, Pete, for Augusto Fernandez, if we look at the championship battle, means Ayagura is now the leader with his 11th place finish, seemingly making uh, all the bit of difference. Three and a half points between them at the top. Agura, Fernandez, and then uh, Cadet a little bit off, but uh, certainly things looking spicy at the top. Yeah, as you say, the half point is the is the, is the the short race in Thailand, isn't it, coming in? But but yeah, it looked like, I mean, Fernandez was was close behind his teammate Acosta in third. He looked like he was going to take big points on Agora, as you say, you know, down in 11th and, and really struggling and then just slid off. Really, you know, costly mistake. On the other hand, as you say, it's only a couple of points difference, but there was a chance there because as Agura didn't really look quick all weekend. I don't think it's ever been one of his favourite tracks from what it sounded like, even during sort of practice and qualifying. He's never really excelled at Phillip Island and it, it just sort of continued that way into the race and he looked like he was going to be really on the ropes with with Fernandez on the podium and, and him outside the top 10 and that and that's even with a lot of riders falling off I think only 18 riders finished there were a lot of people that that didn't finish so it, it could have been a lot worse than 11th for him so really he got out of jail and uh, I guess Fernandez can also say well you know 11th place it could have been a lot worse for me as well making that mistake but you could see from the way he was holding his helmet as he walked away he knew that was a really yeah. great chance to get some proper breathing room between himself and Agura into these final two rounds. Now, of course, Moto2 was not without its controversy uh, this weekend with a big incident involving uh, Jorge Navarro, who fell directly uh, into Simone Corsi's path when he low-sided on the exit of the Miller corner. Uh, He slid onto the grass, unable to move his legs, uh, with the race then controversially continuing while marshals attended to him and carried him away on a stretcher. Keith, I mean, what did you make of that situation? Because I think a lot of people were just watching on and thinking, what on earth are they doing? Well, 
I don't know if you knew nothing about racing, you would still say, why are they still racing? You know, you don't need to know anything about racing. Sometimes I wonder what gets into the head of race direction. I really do. BSB, British Superbikes, over here in the UK. Tracks that are, sorry to say it to anybody who's listening and hates me for it, but are much more dangerous than Grand Prix tracks. Grand Prix tracks, a lot of science goes into making sure that we're at racetracks that are pretty much as good as you can get them. Okay, there are instances now with the pace that we've got, the tyres we've got, the handling we've got, where even some of the Grand Prix tracks now have got a bit too much furniture close to them uh, and they're reaching the barriers with the bikes and so on and so forth. But BSB is are, are on traditional tracks in the UK that you would say, and if you like, Moto America as well. You know, anybody that's raced or been to Moto America, you'll have seen that those tracks have got quite close barriers. But BSB, there's no way that that race would have continued. In a heartbeat, there would have been a red flag. As soon as you've got a rider at trackside that's on the floor that clearly the marshals can't clear, he's quite, he's badly hurt. He's bleeding as well. You know, we've heard since that it wasn't a femoral artery that was that was bleeding, but he was bleeding profusely. He'd got, you know, exposed bone and all the rest of it, all the horrible gooey things that, that none of us want to think about as racers or spectators. But he was hurt. And clearly, there should have been a red flag. Now, where was the system? This is something we've come to before. Again, if I talk about BSB, we have got the best world-class marshalling anywhere in the world. There's nowhere better than British Superbikes under MSVR, Johnny Palmer's mob, Stuart Higgs, of course, race director, series director, who really is the instigator of all of this, going back to the Race Safe Marshals Association and so on. You know, we have got the best in the world, but we don't get that at every racetrack. You're using localised marshalling, localised systems, maybe even localised language for all I know. Um, I did an interview with one of the Race Safe Marshals this year, and, and she was very kind in, in bringing me up to speed on on what the differences are between, you know, different tracks, different world standards, if you like, of marshalling. And some are horrendous in comparison. Now, whether there was no communication between, you know, the marshals on the on the stand and the race direction, I don't know. I don't know what the reasoning is behind it, but it, there shouldn't be a reason. It should have been, you know, we need to call this race, we need to stop this race right now uh, because we've got a rider in trouble and we've got marshals exposed to, to flying objects you know you only need one more guy to come down and side the legs off you and, and away you go you I just the possibilities of it you see the same thing in formula one again i mean you know you guys seem to like tractors on the track you know even when we've got jules bianchi who was killed under a tractor going back to, to japan and this year you've got a tractor on the track again in virtually the same circumstances how does this happen who is it that is stupid enough to not realize how dangerous this is for the corner workers let alone the rider who's already injured the last thing he needs is another motorbike on top of him yeah i i don't understand the thinking and i don't understand why we're even discussing it 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 shouldn't even be something we need to be talking about it should have just been an automatic you know guys on the floor marshals call through it's quite a long lap as well philip island it's not it's not like sort of you know minute and a bit it's it's there's a bit of time for thinking about what's going on there's a bit of time for making that communication and somehow it, it isn't made and I, I i i truly don't understand why i mean I, I i haven't actually tried to get hold of anybody at race direction this week because i've been here before where i've tried to understand what's gone on and and i've and honestly you you can't repeat sometimes some of the the the, the comments that are made the way the decision is made it's it's 
So it is, I haven't been able to get hold of anybody. I haven't tried to get hold of anybody this week to, to find out what the thinking was behind it. But clearly it was wrong and they need to look at themselves regarding that. Yeah, I mean, he said it all there, isn't it? I mean, it was hard to fathom, wasn't it? Just just looking at the images, whether, the, you know, were they receiving conflicting information, were, you know, from the, the scene? Who knows? You know, we, we don't know. We haven't heard. There's been no, you know, sometimes with penalties and things like that, we get an explanation now of why decisions are made, why certain things happen. As far as I'm aware, there's been nothing, um, you know, to sort of explain the sequence of events here and why there wasn't um, a red flag blown thrown with a serious injury like that as you know broken leg like that hit by another bike and yeah just just the images of, of, of guys riding close to that to uh, navarro on the ground with the marshals stood next to him it was scary stuff wasn't it and uh yeah it, it's, it's hard to understand as he says it's, it's hard to understand what what happened there why it didn't get stopped well uh and um, as at the time of recording, the most recent update posted to Navarro's Instagram uh, it says, Hello, everyone. After yesterday's accident, thank God Jorge is fine. His leg has uh, already been operated on. Now we have to see how he recovers and when he can come back home. We also hope that Simone Corsi recovers well. Corsi, who suffered a finger injury, wrote on social media, I'm sorry I couldn't avoid uh, Jorge Navarro, but I wish him well to recover and get back in the saddle soon. I'll definitely have to have plastic surgery on my pinky finger and hope to recover as soon as possible and of course Navarro who's a double Moto3 race winner 10 podiums in Moto2 joins uh, World Supersport Championship next season so uh, we wish him the best in his recovery and preparation for that but certainly a controversial time in um, Moto2. Is it worth now bringing up this subject i know it was raised in moto gp but this idea pete it's on it's the latest crash.net article as well about this little this little button that they can press if they believe should be a red flag now i know that's more uh instigated in terms of the conditions on the track but i imagine for this type of scenario as well it could prove quite useful potentially yeah i mean we we this sort of came out over the weekend with Luca Marini explaining that the riders have spoken about it in the safety commission. And uh, it's, it's an option because it, only the riders know, don't they? It's, it's, it's the riders. They're on the bike. They're the only ones that really know the danger they're facing. And uh, at the moment we don't get to hit, well, race direction, most important, they can't hear from them. They can hear from the marshals and, and everybody doing their best to try and understand the conditions on the track. But at the moment, other than someone raising their hand a little bit or something like that in a race situation, there's no way for, for the race direction to actually know should it be stopped or not. So I think it's a, you know, it makes sense that, you know, the technology, it seems, is there now to allow communication from the bike to race direction, not just the other way around. Um, and the worry is that maybe a couple of people might, you know, if it was only down to a couple of people, it might sort of swing the decision. But it sounds like it would be 80%. Those sort of figures would need to sort of agree. Well, if you've got 80% of the riders agreeing, that's probably the, the best you'll ever get with any riders agreeing on anything. So, you know, if 80% of the riders say it's too dangerous, then I think you're pretty sure it's too dangerous. So I think it's a, it's a good idea and, and let's hope it's brought in pretty soon. Might be like a game of who wants to be a millionaire, fastest finger first. Whoever gets in there first gets a prize, <laughs> perhaps, or something along those lines. Joking apart, of course, it's a great idea. It makes absolute sense. I mean, Pete alluded to it just there. I mean, the old one used to be when you pass the line, you put if five riders or whoever it was, I can't remember the actual number, put their hand in the air, then then that was an indication that we had some consensus from riders on the bikes. <laughs> Hopefully we never go back to a system like that again. But 
you know, the eighty percent scenario, yes, because that negates the um, gamesmanship that you're going to get. You know, if you're in the lead, of course you're going to be pressing that red button if you if you think the race is going to come to an end prematurely and you're going to be awarded the win. You know, I'd be on the bloody thing like this, you know, pressing it for all it's worth. Um, so you you are going to have that kind of gamesmanship situation, um, but. Race control need to know. Race control need to know. They're not feeling what's going on on the bike. Freddie Spencer, despite the fact I've got a huge amount of respect for him, although it wouldn't be his responsibility to to call a race off like this, um, but somebody like him in in race control will have a feel for what's going on, but not as you know, not clearly like you you do as a rider. You know, you can feel and 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 anticipate stuff when you're on a bike so much more than anybody can see looking in. Even the cameras looking in, you can't tell how much that bike is actually moving underneath the rider or how slippery it feels and so on and so forth. Or the visibility, which is a, which is an issue that we've talked about so often. You know, visibility is a, is a nightmare in, in spray and so on. And so it, it's a, it's a good idea. And I, for the, for the pennies, it costs. I mean, it really isn't an option. It, it needs to be there full time from next year. You know, no question. Yeah, myself and Harry, when we speak about it earlier, we're actually saying it's probably better than the Formula One system. Obviously, the Formula One, they can talk over the radio, but then you can get quite emotive sort of language coming in, can't you? This is a lot clearer. Yes or no, you know, dangerous or not. And as he says, it's situations like spray, Phillip Island, things like high wind. I mean, very difficult for someone in race direction sitting in a building to know what the wind's like, you, you know down by Siberia or turn one or somewhere like that. So, uh, Do you know what? That, yeah, that, yeah, good move. That's a really good point, Pete. I mean... I remember commentating on a race once, and Kevin Schwantz kept coming out at Donington Park on the on the uh, coppice, is it? It comes onto the back straight under the Dunlop Bridge that was there back in the day, out of coppice, and he kept going onto the grass. I kept thinking, I couldn't fathom what was going on, but he got so much wind that was whipping across there. In the end, we guessed it, but it was one of those situations where you couldn't work out why he was running out. You don't know. Well, you can sit there watching telly all day long in your upholstered chair, but um, actually on a motorbike that's trying to kill you most corners because the wind's getting underneath you. So I think that, that as I said, for the pennies it costs. <laughs> the only question you've got to ask is why has it taken so long? Obviously, technology's had to catch up a little bit, but um, they've been playing with these sort of onboard systems over the last year. As to, to, but, but this one seems to be a no-brainer. It's it almost too simple. Well, uh, That's why it takes us along. Yeah. <laughs> if Keith could come up with it, it's almost way too simple. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, well, if you want to read the full article and see all of the uh, inner workings of how that might work, I think it was Luca Marini who was talking about it a lot over the weekend. Uh, you can head to crash.net uh, for all of that and more. Um, but now, just a quick interruption to the show because we're now delighted to be sponsored by the wonderful people at NordVPN. Uh, if you like us, and um, whenever you leave your country and get frustrated that you can't watch certain things because they're not shown wherever you are, NordVPN is what you need. It allows you to switch your virtual location to a country that is showing what you want to watch. And yes, that includes MotoGP, World Superbikes, BSB, and more. So now, wherever you are in the world, you'll never miss out at watching live live motorbike action again, or just your favorite program. You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash crash MotoGP to get a huge discount off 
your NordVPN plan and four months for free. It's completely risk-free with your personal information encrypted with the highest security protocols. And if you're not happy with anything, there's Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash crash MotoGP to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months for free. And while you go off and do that, we're going to talk about Moto3 because it was all set to be wrapped up this weekend, the title. And Izan Guevara did just that, didn't he, Keith? Becoming the 2022 Moto3 world champion after winning out in a tough four-way battle for victory. Yeah, class, wasn't it? There's nothing like winning a world title and winning the race to win the world title. That's... uh... I mean, I can't say much more than that. I mean, he looked like the kid that was going to do the business. He did the business at a place like Phillip Island. I mean, it doesn't come any better. I've got to say that I've seen much um, harder fought Moto3 races at Phillip Island than that one was. Um, you know, normally you've got 15, 20 motorbikes that are all going for it, and any one of them could win by the end of the race. But uh, on this occasion, Rivera, world champion, well-deserved, great ride, great year. Wait to see what he's capable of next year. That's it, up to Moto2, isn't he? Jake Dixon's teammate. Uh, you know, only 18 uh, CEV champion, I think, a couple of years ago. So he's, you know, he's added this to his to his CV now and just impressive, as he says. I mean, got a little bit roughed up, I think, on the first lap, went back a bit, but, but you know, put it all behind him and, and no nerves at all. And away he went and, and fought for the win and did it. So, yeah, a really impressive, a guy with... Uh, Quite a future ahead of him, you've got to say. His last lap was absolutely superb. I mean, like there was a, lots of obviously speculation as to whether you lead onto that last out of that last corner. It's a fast left-hander out onto the, the last corner. But he, he absolutely nailed the last lap, inch perfect, millimeter perfect. In fact, everywhere got the gap that he needed out the last corner. Nobody had a chance to, to slipstream him to the line. So uh, it was a it was a very very mature. And you're right, he was junior world champion. Now he is senior world champion, if you like. And uh, I think it's going to be a great team next year. You, you, you know, those two side by side, you've got the, the humour and the maturity of now. I say maturity. Did I just say maturity about Jake Dixon? Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take that back immediately. <laughs> the slightly older Jake Dixon then in that case, who's going to be a great teammate to be around because there's not going to be tension in the team, that's for sure. It's going to be a, a happy kind of environment to go. So I think that it's going to be a very good year for him next year. We should probably just mention as well, Rory Skinner, he's got the, oh, yeah. the ride now, hasn't he? So that's, uh, you know, and a two-year deal, it seems. So that's that's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, John Hopkins obviously managing him. They've been looking after him a little while. He, you know, his mum and dad have stepped back a little bit, I think, and, and let Rory move forward. I mean, Rory Rory probably is, even though he's, what, he's only 20 now, but he's probably a year later than where he should be at this point because if you remember the Talent Cup thing held him back a little bit. He didn't get the ride. He won the Talent Cup. You can't do any better than that, but they didn't give him the prize effectively. So he's he's, a, he's really a, probably a year behind what he was aiming to be. But all the same, he's still the right age, and it's a good team that he's going to be with. You know, he's got some good people in there, and I'm I'm really looking forward to see Rory Skinner move on up. I, I, he's one of those kids. I mean, he's had a couple of knocks here and there, and it doesn't seem to have affected him really. I mean, he didn't quite get the team ride that he was hoping he was going to get at one point. Then he went back to super sport and absolutely annihilated everybody in britain on a super sport bike moved back up into super bike which again in britain is not a, not an easy class it really is not there's some very very quick riders here 
And so Rory, Rory's looked very, very good. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he's capable of next year. I mean, the Brits are coming, aren't they, at the moment? We've got them all over the place. <laughs> well, we, we spoke about it earlier. You know, the, the British system has is, is not been great for, for a while, has it, in terms of producing the next bit of young talent? So uh, it's good to see these coming through. Um, but Not bad uh, with the old uh, talent as well, though. <laughs> well, best, this is what I want. Yamaha to... man was looking quite good this weekend. Cal, you know, Cal Crutchlow, he's doing all right, isn't he? It's not been, it's not been a terrible comeback for him at all. It's been um, but I did want to talk. It's been brilliant, but I, I wanted to talk uh, just quickly on the young guns. And actually, was it me or was it Mark Marquez being quite feisty? off the track in terms of what he was talking about because he was saying things like oh yeah it's great to see you know Guevara doing well but you know I've got to be you know, I'm wary because the, the, that's my competition coming through and even talking about Alex Rins you know who's joining of course the Honda Fold next year are you going to give him any advice no why would I bother doing that I'm not doing that it's he can find out for himself I thought he was being quite feisty on and off the track well I think that that's the side of Mark Marquez that you don't normally see publicly I mean, he is quite good fun, isn't he? I mean, you don't hear, you know, you know he's a he's a player. He's 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 good fun on and off the bike in most circumstances. And and these guys are, are really friends of his. You know, they're kind of guys that he's played with over over the over the years. But I think that the the, the key has always been with Mark Marquez. He does stuff on a motorbike that no one else can do. No one else has been able to do it. His data is absolutely unique to him. It's been a you know I always remember Cal saying this while we were mentioning Cal Crutchlow. You know, he can go and look at his data anytime he wants. The data is there, you know, in the Honda camp as it is. But no one could actually use it to any real advantage because only Mark could ride a motorbike like it was. And so I think that the, the fact is he's loosened up a little bit. Before, you wouldn't see him if he, he wouldn't show pain. He wouldn't show emotion. You know, it was all part of the Marquez uh, way of going about his business. He's had to show pain at some stage because he's been in so much. He's had to admit that he isn't um, the machine that we all thought he was. He is actually human and he does need his arm pointing in the right direction to be able to ride a motorbike properly, so on and so forth. It, you know, I think there are certain things that Mark has learned about himself in these last couple of years that, that, that now he's even more, which I think makes him even more dangerous. The fact is now he's got over all those um what's the words i'm looking for he's got over the the, the situation that he, he felt he had to be like that he, he had to not show people any fallibility at all he's got over that now now he now he's kind of relaxed and, and and i think you know you saw him dancing and singing earlier on you know he he was dancing in 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 pit lane i mean blimey i never even knew he could dance really not 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 in public anyhow then and then he was singing on the mic wasn't he and and he and he and he, he said he didn't know the mic was open, but I don't believe that for one split second. I think he knew it was open, <laughs> and, he was having, and he was having good fun with it. You know, he's too smart to not know a mic's open. Um, so it's kind of a Mark Marquez that I think suddenly other people are, we're all seeing that personality now. I mean, I think that when we've been around the paddock, when you live in the paddock, you see Mark Marquez in a slightly different way than what he is publicly. And I think we're now seeing an even more, you know fully rounded Mark Marquez, someone who's prepared to show a little bit more emotion, to show a little bit more, you know, reality in, in what it takes to be him. And I reckon that's a great thing. I mean, Mark Marquez, as a rider and with a personality, imagine where that can get him in 2023. And of course, he's just changed manager. You know, is this part of the new the new Mark, let's say? You know, Emilio Alzamora did so much for him, but a very quite closed off character, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, he's... 
they obviously felt a change was needed is this you know that his new management is saying to him look mark be yourself you know you know if you want to do something do it also the age thing isn't it he's coming up for 30 i think and uh, you know he's not the young guy anymore he's always been the young guy pushing the old guys and making them uncomfortable now he's got all this pressure <laughs> from from guys like well gravara in a few years maybe but other guys already now the, that are younger than him so those two things combined but yeah, I mean, he's. Uh, it, it's great to see Mark back on form and, and look forward to this contest of, of the new guys trying to take him on next year. And to come back to Cal Crutchlow, he scored three points finishes, I think, and that's already half of what Dovi had uh, managed to achieve too. And he's beaten Darren Binder in every race so far. So there is certainly uh, still some fights in the old dog uh, just yet. <laughs> Don't doubt Cal. Don't doubt Cal. <laughs> Never doubt me. Do it at uh, do it at your peril. Um, now, unfortunately, it has been uh, a, a emotional and sad couple of weeks in in motorbike racing, and unfortunately, that did continue again uh, in the last week with the uh, the sad passing of Victor Stearman, uh, who suffered uh, well, who suffered injuries and then succumbed to those injuries in a World Supersport three hundred crash in Portugal last weekend. Just twenty two years old, so our thoughts, uh, all of us here at Crash, are with his family and friends. It is such a difficult time, and it's highlighting again uh, talks of safety issues, particularly in the support classes. Keith and, and Maverick Vinales, who whose own younger cousin died in the same category last year had some very choice words to say particularly about the supersport 300 uh, category and the bikes they're using as well and and he saying fundamentally it's the bikes that are the problem here and they need to change yeah deep breath with this one i mean victor stearman i mean that's tragic enough and then his mum passed away shortly afterwards um i mean i cannot imagine I mean, they seem like like lovely people. I I don't know them personally at all, but I mean, one or two people I know know them. And and you know, it, how on earth do you recover from something like that? I, I I couldn't imagine it. I've discussed it here with my wife. You know, you just would be beside yourself, and you would want to try and make it as safe as you could. But it's so difficult for me to to sit here and try and rationalize how that will happen you know certainly mechanically you will be able to do something you know there have been talks about changing the, the gear ratios to make it harder and so on and so forth but what's happened is is that motorcycle racing is a victim at a grand prix level and the like or, or certainly in the small bikes of its own success the formulae that have been produced to make great close racing means you are getting just that great close racing in the old days, you would have bikes that differ, differed greatly. You would have tire allocations that would differ greatly. You would have, you know, factory parts that were put on some bikes and not on other bikes. So therefore, they'd be five mile an hour quicker or whatever it is. So it had a natural, you know, order, if you like, in, in the mechanics of the whole thing. But now that everyone's riding the same motorbike effectively, and even the, the what you can do with those bikes is limited in performance values um, to keep them close together. Of course, everybody wants close racing, but when you've got, you know, situations like this, it makes you question that. How do you go about making it not close racing? I mean, it's, it's almost the, the, the complete opposite to what we've all worked towards for the last 20 years, 30 years. Um, I, I'm really struggling to work out how you can make it much better. You are always going to have incidents where 
the fact that racing motorcycles is dangerous is emphasized. And I think that this last couple of weeks, I mean, Chrissy Rouse, horrible incident. You know, I go back to a very good friend of mine, Craig Jones, who, who, who had a very similar incident, um, was collected by a bike from behind. And, and, you know, it's, it's terrible, but I, incidents like that are very difficult to legislate against. You know, when it comes to the smaller machines, yes, I can see how they're getting tangled up. And we've talked about <clears throat> how that might be able to try and spread them out a little bit. But how do you do that you know, without going back to a situation where you have a disparity in all the motorcycles? And then all of a sudden, it's it, you've got a completely different situation in the paddock where the, the most money buys the best bike or the, the best factory team get the best riders so they are out out front by miles and we suddenly have races where you've got lapped riders and then you run into a, a whole scenario then of lapped riders are, are they a danger do we do we have to take lapped riders out of it if we go back to the bad old days of, of where races were spread out a lot more it is an absolute nightmare to try and work their way through this and i don't envy anybody there are some brains out there that will be working on this and i and there should be a working committee that should be you know discussing the 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 mechanical electrical um, situation that might be able to alter the, the situation that we're in. But close racing is close racing and there are mistakes within that. Now, maybe it's an educational thing. Maybe maybe riders that are involved in these things, maybe the penalty situation for weaving or for taking other people's braking lines and stuff like that becomes even more draconian. That's the way I think it will end up having to go purely and simply because... But, but we've had draconian penalties before where you start from the back of the grid or whatever. No one takes any notice. They all do exactly what they do. Um, so it's going to be probably just on an educational thing. I can't see how you can make the racing worse because the safety angle of it is always going to be very similar. You know, close racing is going to be a situation where there is a possibility of somebody going down. You know, look at what happened. We talked about it earlier on with, with, Navarro, you know, Navarro getting run over in the middle of the track, you know, he broke his leg badly, but it could have been worse. Or he might have got run over and been perfectly okay. I mean, how do you legislate in those situations to be able to come up with a formula that protects all of the riders, particularly the young riders, of course, I mean, I think that's the other thing when, for some strange reason, I mean, a life is a life, whether it be a young life or an older life, you know, that makes no difference to me at all. But the fact is, is that how do you how do you make that work better for all out there? I, I, I'm really, I mean, being a commentator is is much easier than being an official at the moment with this lot in the back of your mind, trying to work out how you are going to come up with some kind of formula that's going to suit all and give us what we all want at trackside, close racing. So difficult, isn't it? As you say, Keith. I mean, we're seeing the age limits coming in. We hear about these automatic accident uh, alert system that they're developing, that kind of thing. I mean, Vinales is saying that it almost sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? That actually by making the bikes faster and more difficult to ride, it'll actually make things safer in terms of less group racing. And, uh, but then as, as you say, Keith, people want to see close racing. That's what people tune in for. And, and the riders want to be involved in close races as well, don't they? His concern was basically that because of the, the power to weight ratio is quite low, that as long as you're in a group and in the slipstream, you get pulled along with everyone else and he was comparing it to when he came in which was on a 125 uh, two-stroke grand prix bike 
he said it, w- it was so hard to write that you couldn't do that. And, and, and But again, it's as Keith was explaining, you then get some people that, that can ride the bikes pulling away and you get racing that isn't as interesting and maybe people feel they don't have a chance of winning when they go to the grid. So, so difficult, isn't it, to try and work out. It, it's, it's one thing when, uh, you, you know, there's racetrack design, there's walls, there's runoff areas, things that you can measure and increase. But when it's these multi-bike accidents, which is what we're talking about here, isn't it? It's, it, it's, it's so difficult to know how to get rid of them. They're always going to be there in some shape or form, aren't they, sadly? I, th- I think that you have to look at the each and every rate, each and every accident in context. I think the problem is it's too easy to say that that's because they're young, that's because they're racing too closely. Because quite a lot of these accidents have got nothing to do with that. You know, it's a situation where luck has been against the situation. And I think that, you know, getting it in context is very, very important and, and not having a knee-jerk reaction to it is, is very important as well. I mean, it's, uh, for me, it needs to be a bit more scientific than emotional. Um, and let's work our way around it. There are, there are going to be things that you can do, you know, adding weight penalties, you know, adding electronic penalties. There, you know, you can add an electronic penalty. If someone has been, uh, you know, created some kind of situation, weaved in a straight line or whatever, take 200 revs off him. You know, there are situations electronically that are really, really easy to, to, to manage and really, really easy to legislate for. for. But changing a class, changing a, I, I think is, is, is not the way to go personally, even though it is very tragic. And what we're talking about is, is very serious. But I think, I think you, you have to deal with a situation that you see if a rider regularly or, or even once, if a rider weaves 200 revs off, does it again, another 200 revs off. He will, in, he will be backwards then. He won't be in amongst all of that lot to cause chaos anymore because knocking a couple hundred revs off of a Moto3 bike is going to kill it. And I think that, that that for me is really the, 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 probably the best way, as I see it at the moment, in my more of a layman's term, if you like. I'm not au fait with whatever else is available electronically or, or otherwise for, for organisers, you know, for, promote, for um, race direction to, to, to penalise these guys with. You know, back of the grid, long lap penalties, it's great for the spectacle. You know, we had a winner from a long lap penalty. We've had it before. You know, it's great to watch someone having to fight their way through the field. If anything, it might exacerbate the whole thing. You know, he's got a long lap penalty. He's been dropped to 10th place. Now he's going to fight his way through like a lunatic to get back to the front again. Um, I just just think that electronic penalties are, are, are the way to go. Well, let's absolutely hope uh, measures are done and, and changes made. We can only hope and we'll keep you abreast of, of what things uh, are done as they happen on Crash.net. But our thoughts, uh, of course, with Victor Stearman's uh, friends and family, particularly, of course, with uh, the sad passing of his mum as well. So uh, a tough few weeks in the motorbike world. Indeed. And, and and this weekend, for anybody that's got a weekend out for, for motorbike racing, we're all up at Mallory Park this weekend to support Gino Ria who had that terrible accident and obviously needs some rehabilitation. He's back in the UK now. Uh, Mallory Park is the race of the year, and, and they, they're going to supply some of the ticket money to, to Gino's rehabilitation fund. I'm up there. Steve Parrish is up there. You know, race of the year winners, past and, uh, and, and the like, are up there as well. Troy Corser is, is joining us, so that will be hectic, to say the least. But I think everybody's getting behind the Gino Rio fund, and if you feel like coming up and supporting it, then... Uh, We'd be more than happy to have a beer with you. We'll be there all day long and um, looking forward to helping Gino in any way that we can. 
Oh, sounds amazing. What a brilliant cause as well. So get yourself there if you, if you can, if you're free this weekend. Uh, but of course, it is a busy weekend, isn't it? Because we've got Malaysia. We're back in Sepang. No rest for MotoGP. I love this track. It's so annoying. It's not in Formula One anymore, but I love the MotoGP Malaysia track. Yeah, it's one of those tracks that actually does actually suit both um, disciplines, isn't it? I mean, I, there, mm. there's a couple of things that we'd like different from, from a MotoGP point of view, but I've got to say, I love going to Kuala Lumpur anyway. I mean, you know, the airport is 15 minutes from the track. Um, you wouldn't think so trying to get out of the track to get back to the airport in the evening if you're trying to do it in a hurry. But the, the, the point being is that it's a great racetrack. It has got some fantastic corners on it as well, providing it doesn't rain because um, it absolutely monsoon weather. I've ne- That's the, the worst weather I've ever seen anywhere. I mean, Thailand has its fair share of it because obviously it's a similar kind of weather pattern. But, but uh, Malaysia seems to have the worst I've ever seen. And the track copes with it. I can't believe how... Uh, you know, five minutes afterwards, the, the rain has run off and we've got we've got a track that's raceable again. But it's a great racetrack, great atmosphere. You know, the fans at trackside, they go mad. And they kind of, it's quite, it's one of the rare racetracks that did away with Formula One in favour of MotoGP, it seems. I mean, it, you know, they went big on MotoGP. Of course, the CEO back in the day was Razlan Razali, who used to be CEO of the Sepang International Circuit and then now obviously is the, the, the Yamaha independent team boss now um and he's broken away from sepang if you like he's no longer the sepang international circuit sponsored yamaha team as it was with patronus back in the day so there's a, there's quite a link there as well i don't think it's going to give him any advantage by the way come the weekend i don't think that we're going to see cal crutchlow on the podium or maybe we will who knows with cal <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, i mean I think I've speaking to some members of the uh, some team members at Sepang Test. They said, "You know what? This is the place we've been to more than any other racetrack in the last twenty years." Because when you add up all of the tests and the races, you know, it's like it really it's like a second home. You know, as Keith says, it, it's probably easier to get to Sepang than it is to some European tracks door to door. You know, you can jump on the plane, you jump off at the airport, and you're fifteen minutes from the track. So uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, a venue that's well known for everybody in MotoGP. You know, they like coming there. It's familiar. It's, it's exotic, but, but familiar, you might say. And, uh, you know, the track itself throws up the challenges and the weather, as Keith says, you know, it looks like maybe thunderstorms in the afternoon or weekend again this weekend. So that will keep everyone on their toes with a title potentially to be decided. For a spectator's point of view, um, if you fly into KLI, obviously KLIA, I think it is, um, fly in there's two airports, but the, the main international one is closest. The main entrance to to Sepang is like this triangle. You've seen it before, those great big like brollies over over two major straights. And it's like a triangle. And it's full of, of all sorts of fantastic vendors and the like, all the way down to food or goodies or whatever. So you come in the main entrance and you can cross over the bridge either side. And it's a very accessible racetrack from the point of view that there always seems to be a lot of fans around the entrances and stuff where you bump into your rider, your favourite riders and you you always seem to see everybody at Sepang. I don't know how, how they design the paddocks and, the, and the, 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 the fan areas, but there's always something somewhere to do. And even from a, from a working perspective, the back of the pits are really, really hospitable. They've got nice trees you can stand under and have your meetings. I know this sounds very exotic because it is. It's, it's a great place. It has a great atmosphere, I think, Sepang. And uh, may it do well. And the country as well. I mean, I, you know, if you're into the wider... Thing. I mentioned the downside of it, which is all the palm oil trees everywhere, which is a shame. Poor old gorillas and monkeys and stuff have cleared off somewhere else now. But, but the actual country itself is very hospitable. It's a, it's a, it's a nice place to be. Kuala Lumpur is, it's not as frantic as Bangkok, 
um, which for me is a downside because I like Bangkok. But but for, for, for Kuala Lumpur itself, it's very, very, it's got both sides of culture that you, you kind of like to dip into now and again. Transport links are really, really good. Trains everywhere. So you can, you know, you can, you can stay in Kuala Lumpur and get a train up to the airport and then a taxi from the airport to the track. I said already, it's only 15 minutes around the corner, so it's not an expensive track. So you can actually stay in the city centre. There's a train that runs every 30 minutes, I think it is, even more, I think, during race weekends. It goes direct from the centre of Kuala Lumpur up to the main international airport, get off it there, get in a taxi. I think there's shuttle buses or whatever round to, to the track itself, or you can live nearby if you want to. I mean, there's real budget hotels as well. Me and Hodgie, because we wanted to stay close by one time, we sort of broke away from the rest of the um, VT team back in the day. They stayed in Kuala Lumpur and drove up every day, which added like an hour each way to your, to your trip if you want to drive in from the city. So me and him stayed in a, in, in, in a really budget hotel where the, the shower and the bed and the toilet and everything was in one room. It was this, it was about, it was, I think it was about eight quid a night or something we stayed in, which was great for the three or four days that we did it, but we'd had enough by the time we'd showered yeah. all over our bed and wetted our toilet rolls and, and, you know, suitcases full of whatever. So it was, but there are really, really good budget places right on top of the track as well. If you fancy that. And they say motorsport isn't glamorous. Uh, it is. <laughs> that's a hell of a picture to paint, isn't it? Uh, but crucially, Prediction time, form guides, what we thinking? Top three, because I tell you what, no one scored any points for Phillip Island. No one you know got what? anything. That's a good thing. That just goes yeah. to show you how great MotoGP is when three yeah. pundits don't get anything. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> zero. Although yeah, I, I do remind you, you have both still got Fabio Quattararo locked in as your title, but I've got, I went for a lace. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Well, let us know as well, before we get into it, your predictions too. top threes in the comments below, please. We always enjoy reading them. Uh, who wants to go first this week? Who's ready? I'll tell you what, I'm going to go first because I've already written mine down. I'm going for a Mark Marquez win. I'm laying that down right now. A Mark Marquez win, a Pecco Bagnaia second, and an Enea Bastianini third. I think that's a strong podium. I think you've matured, Harry. I think you've matured quite well. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think there's still a bit of sporting bet element in that as well, but we'll see. Um, Right, who's ready? Keith or Pete? Who wants to go? I think Marquez is a great shout. I'm going to have him in the top three, definitely. Yeah, I was going to say, I've got him third. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and then I've got Rin second. Yeah. And I've got Bastianini first. Now, Bastianini, in the test earlier this year, he he, he broke the unofficial lap record, if you like. So uh, so I, I'm sort of a bit swayed by that. But obviously, one lap and a race distance are two different things. But he was fast again in Australia. I don't think tyre wear will be such a big thing this weekend. But no, I'm going to go for him. So I'm not... Uh, putting any of the title guys on the podium. So, I hang went on, to the wait, first you... test that Suzuki had at Sepang. And I remember I got the pictures in my phone of, of the bike. I remember thinking it was the prettiest MotoGP bike I'd seen in a long time. It was beautiful. So I think Rins is a really good shout as well. But the trouble is, I can't go with the same as you. Otherwise, we're not going to have any bloody winners, are we, out of the three of us? <laughs> I'm definitely, definitely going to have Marquez in there just because I... I think he'll be top three, so I'm going to go with Marquez. Um, oh, blimey. <laughs> Bang Nair and Quattararo. Uh, Wait, so what's your order? 
Oh, do you want it in order as well? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you saying Benaya, Marquez for the win? Oh, Benaya, no. Bad night Marquez, Quattararo. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so, Keith, Bagnaia, Marquez, uh, Fabio Quattararo. Pete, so hang on, because you went in the reverse order. It was Bastianini, Rins. Uh, first. Yeah. yeah. No, Bastianini to win. Yeah. yeah. Rins second, Marquez third. Marquez third. Okay. Uh, we, we should probably just say, you know, to win the title, Bagnaia has got to be top five this weekend. I mean, there's there's, a, there's lots of combinations because Alej and Quattararo are definitely still in play and obviously Bastianini a bit. But Bagnaia, if he's outside the top five, it won't be decided this weekend. That's the first thing really at this stage for people watching to just remember. So he's got to be top five. And then he's got to score, you know, 11 points more than Fabio, less than two from Aleish. So if Aleish wins, he'll take it to the final round. There isn't so one rider. There isn't one rider that wants to go to Valencia having to fight for a title. <laughs> <laughs> that is a horrible racetrack to have to fight for. <laughs> Imagine if they all crashed out. Marquez, uh, not Marquez, sorry, uh, the uh, Bastini, Bagnaia, Fabio and Aleish and Bastianini wins, what does that do? Surely that elevates him right up there. Uh, it would mean they would all four still be... I know Aleish would... No, Aleish, because he's 27 points Aleish behind be now, done, so he would actually drop out, yeah. but Bastianini would stay in, so you still have three well, guys for the final round. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, look, and, and the whole team orders thing, isn't it? Again, you know, rewind to Sepang, was it 2017, Dovi and Lorenzo, the mapping eight message coming up on the dash. We were talking about dashboards earlier. You know, so we know Ducati are willing to use team orders at the penultimate round. Yeah. What will they do this weekend? I mean, it's worked pretty well for them so far. These sort of sort of not too hands-on, just kind of like, you can race for the win, but don't mess with Peko too much. But this weekend, what will they say? Might they say, you know what, guys, you race for Ducati this weekend, Peko gets the title, and then you do what you want at Valencia. You know, they could sell it to them maybe like that. We don't know, and they're not going to tell us, of course. You're kind of you're kind of forgetting the teammates coming together almost at Miller Corner at um, at Phillip Island. Bastianini nearly rammed Pecco up the backside. I mean, he had to he had to get up on the pegs. I mean, he had to had to kind of pull the bike out from underneath him to miss the rear end of Pe- of Bangnaya. So I, I think I, I mean honestly, I think Gigi and Davide are going to have a proper job managing them next year. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> I mean, and to be to be honest, for, from Bagnaia's point of view, if Bastianini or Miller or someone ran away up front and took the 25 and the 20 points away from Quattro, that's not the end of the world, is it, for Ducati? So, but how will they play it all? You know, you were talking about the, the pressure of Bagnaia leading the championship. You know, you've got Ducati riders that are, that are sort of messing around a bit and unsure where to overtake. And then you've got guys like Marquez and Rins who don't care at all. Yeah, could, could be interesting on uh, on Sunday. And, and Quattro's got to go for it. For me, Quattro's got to get the whole shot and be like 0.8 of a second ahead to try and make up for the, the time he'll lose on the straights. And, and that's his only chance. Well, that's, con- honest, that's considerable as well. We've got two straights, one after another with Airpin in the middle that are going to make the difference for mm-hmm. Yamaha. And I think, you know, my my prediction of Quattro being on the podium is one where he's chucked gunpowder shot at it, gunpowder bloody load at it, fired everything. He's got a... He's got, He's got to chuck all caution to the wind at Sepang, otherwise he isn't going to be world champion. Either way, you're going to want to watch it. You do not want to miss these last couple of MotoGP races. Uh, We're done, but we're going to be here as well for the last few races too. Make sure you're tuned in, as always, across Crash.net for all the very latest news and analysis across the week. And then we'll be back with you next week to discuss it all. Will we have a champion? It could well be 
crowned this weekend. Get your questions in, leave them in the comments section or tweet Instagram or Facebook us. Just search Crash MotoGP and please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as well. And we shall see you right back here next week. But from myself, Keith and Pete, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.